Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Hope you have been staying healthy and safe as we uh, continue to celebrate an amazing uh, May here. Um, I'm still on my high from the White House trip and still trying to make sense of how it happened, why it happened, who I saw, uh, trying to relive uh, the memories of uh, the White House and uh, what it has meant for uh, the work that we do here on Dear Asian Americans and uh, for all of us in our community, all working towards amplifying our stories, uplifting our voices, and to advocate for a safer and better and more enriching future for all of us now and, and for our children. And so thank you so much for joining us today. We are back to our series in partnership with Stand With Asian Americans as we tackle this time, uh, what now from the perspective of Asian American history. And so we are joined today by two amazing guests and friends of mine, uh, Ian Shin and Christine Peralta, who are both professors in American history, uh, Ian from University of Michigan and Christine from uh, Amherst College. And so uh, we're going, uh, this is number three of our 10-part series on Dear Americans, What Now? Uh, looking at the last couple of years of uh, hate crimes against our community and, and what we can do going forward um, from an action and sort of mindset perspective. And so uh, big thanks to our friends at Stand With Asian Americans for uh, allowing us to share these stories. Uh, I got a chance to hang out with uh, the team last week in D.C. finally met Justin and Bra Justin Zhu and Brian Pang for the first time. Uh, just a great group of folks. Uh, and, and to be able to uh, share these stories with you, what a blessing it is. And I am amped up and recharged from a week uh, hanging out with friends, uh, doing some great work in D.C. And so uh, shout outs to Stand with Asian Americans uh, and to uh, all their all the other organizations doing great work uh, in this space. Uh, so. Thanks again for tuning in. This is episode 149 of Dear Asian Americans, uh, tackling the topic of Asian American history on our 10-part series called Dear Asian Americans, What Now? in partnership with Stand With Asian Americans. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Ian and Christine. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans, folks. Hope you're staying healthy and safe. Uh, we are it's still celebrating what I guess now we're calling Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, today, I'm really excited for this conversation and, you know, when we have multiple guests on, we get more down about a topic than about the personal story. And this particular topic, I think, is not only important, but necessary for us to talk about, uh, not just today, but on an ongoing basis. And it is the topic of our history. And so when we talk about Asian American history in this country, it, um, most of us have actually have never learned it, um, partly because our parents did not know and they were too busy uh, trying to make sure that we could have economic opportunity in this country. And I think we have to really have uh, empathy for that and to understand that they didn't know what they didn't know. And two, our education system, as we know, and, and as we're advocating for, um, was woefully in, inept uh, in some ways or not capable of teaching us these things, particularly uh, from our perspective. And so while we may have learned about things like the Chinese Exclusion Act or the you know incarceration of Japanese Americans during the war, um, it wasn't necessarily from us. And so today we have two Bad-ass Asian American studies professors who will tell us all about these wonderful things from us, by us. And so I would love to introduce you all to my two dear friends. First, we have Dr. Christine Peralta, Assistant Professor of History, Sexuality, Women's and Gender Studies at Amherst College. And my dear friend, Dr. Ian Chin, Assistant Professor of History and American Culture at the University of Michigan. Go blue. And so... Uh, both of you, are welcome to the show. Uh, Christine, I'd love to hear a, a more proper introduction of yourself uh, and introduce yourself here to our audience. Hi, Jerry. Thank you for having me on your show. 
So I am currently an assistant professor of history and gender and women's studies. I got my PhD in history at the University of Illinois, and I also had a concentration in Asian American studies. And one of the reasons why I ended up at the University of Illinois, even though I, I actually never knew anything about Illinois except lyrics in an alkaline trio song, <laughs> was um, basically there was two tenured professors who were Filipinos who study Philippine American history, only two in all of the U.S. <laughs> um, and so I applied to both of those programs and I got into one of them. And that was primarily the one that I wanted to be in. And so I went to the University of Illinois. I also did a master's in um, the University of British Columbia with another advisor who um, he is in a really niche field called Asian American intellectual history. Um, and he really got me super interested in that. And so I, I really wanted to do Asian American intellectual history too. <laughs> um, and then I did my undergrad at a really small college in Texas called um, St. Mary's University. And it's a Hispanic serving institution. And the reason why I went there was because my older brother actually failed out of <laughs> the university a year, uh, his university a year before I started going to college. And he went to a predominantly white institution and really was very bright, a lot brighter than <laughs> my parents thought I was. Um, so they were very worried about what my uh, survival rating was going to be. And so despite having really stellar SAT scores, et cetera, et cetera, I really wanted to be in an environment that didn't just encourage me to become a good scholar, but also um, be attentive to the fact that I was trying to grow up and become like a good citizen for other people in my community. Uh, so I learned a lot, and I would say that background in that HSI really shapes the way that I approach history. So yeah, <laughs> that that's my background. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating because I, when we when we think about the typical, and I won't say typical, but at least from my community, the Korean American community's perspective of what academics means, you know, particularly at the undergraduate higher education level. That conversation doesn't happen of going somewhere where you're going to be more successful or giving yourself the best chance of success. They put the mm -hmm. logos on a wall and you go, how many, what is the most bragworthy uh, logo that, you know, mom can go tell her church friends about? And then you go there. That's sort of, you know, it's it's all about, yes, it is about academic excellence, but a lot of the choices that we make, I think, are anchored in external validation, which, you know, obviously is not just unique to our culture and community, but I'm really actually, you know, jazzed about, about the fact that they made a strategic decision where you would thrive rather than going somewhere and, and you know, giving yourself, at least on, on paper, uh, a much more challenging thing. So we're going to go to Ian and learn more about him and come back to you to learn more about sort of the, the cultural identity piece. But um, Ian, what, uh, I guess, how did you uh, end up becoming a professor of Asian American studies? Because you and I share one thing that we used to be consultants and long, long time ago, but how did you uh, go down this path of academia? 
Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Um, and it's great to be here with you and, and with Christine. Um, so, you know, as you said, I'm an assistant professor of history and American culture at the University of Michigan. It's uh, in my contract, I have to say go blue every time I, I say U of M's uh, name. So go blue. Um, but, you know, I, I, I so at, at U of M, just in terms of introduction, I teach both uh, the history of U.S. foreign relations and Asian American studies. And so my work uh, really sits at the intersection uh, of these two uh, academic subfields. And, and one of the things that I really appreciated about what Christine was saying earlier in terms of how she selected where she went to school um, is the, the way that academia works, which is not actually always all that transparent. Like, why do we have these titles that are assistant professor and then associate professor and then a full professor? And there are all these other folks that are adjunct professors and lecturers. And the reason I bring this up is because one of the things that we can talk about maybe later is why it takes so long for us to learn about Asian American history, right? Why does it take so long for all the research that are fascinating that is being done that's, you know, kind of um, that people talk about at conferences, why does it take so long for it to trickle down? to, you know, when uh, you're in, you know, kind of middle school or elementary school or high school to learn something beyond just the railroad workers or the Japanese American incarceration during World War II. I think one of the things has to do with how academic knowledge is produced and then how it kind of trickles down. And Christine and I are both part of that system now and doing what we can to kind of change it from within. But I, th I think that's one of the things that perhaps listeners, you know, may not be as, as familiar with um, is how that whole system is set up. But in terms of my own background, you know, I went to Amherst College, which is where Christine teaches uh, currently as uh, an undergraduate student. That's where I took my first Asian American studies course and then ended up, uh, as you said, Jerry, working in consulting. I had wanted uh, to go into graduate school, but my advisors very smartly advised me that, you know, it was better to take a few years off, uh, sort of expand my horizons, see what the world was like, explore some other interests, you know, uh, making a, a salary and kind of establishing a life, paying rent, all of those things that I hadn't really done because I'd only been to school uh, for, you know, 16 years was something to kind of try out. Um, and then after I did that for a few years, my inclination was that, you know, the work was interesting, the people were fantastic, and obviously the pay was great. Uh, but I felt like the work wasn't meaningful. Uh, and I didn't want to wake up, you know, kind of two, three decades down the line with a really nice house and a really nice car, but feeling sort of empty inside about the world um, that, that I was in and the impact that I was having. And so uh, I decided to go back to graduate school. Um, I went to Columbia University for my PhD, uh, worked with a historian named Mei Nye uh, there, and then you kind of found my interest um, in Asian American history. I wanted to study that from the get-go uh, and then eventually kind of realized that a lot of how Asian Americans are treated in this country is dependent on uh, what's happening internationally. And so I developed an interest in the history of U.S. foreign relations. And since then, I've been trying to situate myself, again, at the intersection of these two fields uh, so that we can get both sort of internal and external explanations for the history of Asian Americans uh, in the United States. I want to go back to Christine and learn, you know, uh, we'll start with Christine. I want to learn more about how you became the academic that learns about us, right? And now you teach about us, but the initial wanting to go to grad school and then to study us. Tell us about your cultural background, your um, American origin story, if you will, and, and how some of those elements contributed to you having this unique interest in learn, wanting to learn about us. Right. That's such an amazing question. So something that I think is rather unique about my family is I had a mother who would... <laughs> constantly 
tell me stories that were definitely not like PG <laughs> rated stories um, about her family and all of her trauma and her experiences. And essentially, from what I extrapolated fairly early on is my family has for many years suffered from intergenerational trauma of separation basically for a hundred years this has been going on because of U.S. empire and so she told me all of these stories like that her dad was really spoiled because her um, grandpa worked in the U.S. and would send money, but basically never raised him and how that affected his psyche and how he knew he was like expected to also pick this up and either become really wealthy because he's had these opportunities or to or to also go abroad And so thinking about this long trajectory of a family who has been migrating for a century and has had a relationship with the U.S. And despite this fact, the U.S. not acknowledging (laughs) Filipinos pretty much at all. I think I remember the first time I ever went to an academic conference, this white male professor told me this project isn't significant because nobody thinks about Filipinos at all. And so I think that's where it started was trying to process these stories that my parents told me and before thinking that it was like a really big burden. So there was a young adult novel called The Giver, which it talked about how basically there was only one person in like a whole like dystopic society who would carry the burden of society's history And at like a really early age, when I was like eight and read that, I felt a a deep connection with that because I felt I was the only one who would actually listen to my mom's stories. Like my brother and sister didn't care. Uh, So it was almost as if they couldn't hear her when she would say these things. Um, And I used to think it was a big burden, but then now talking to my students and hearing them talk about how they wish their parents told them about their stories of being Vietnamese refugees, of working in garment factories, all of these things that are alighted and suppressed for some narrative of an American dream. It makes me realize that having that mom that was like really unfiltered (laughs) and telling me these stories um, really was the I think the start of me wanting to be a storyteller um, and then understanding that that history was the best venue to do it. I think you're right. You know, um, I, I share about our experiences from a professional context quite a bit, you know, with companies and schools and the like. And, um, you know, when we get to topics of sort of why does the disparity exist, whether it's academic you know, attainment or incomes or poverty levels in this country. And people just have this glazed look on their face because we've all been brainwashed with the mother minority myth, whether you like it or not. And the short answer is you have to understand history and not, you know, Asian history, but American history, because everything that's tied to who got to come here and when and the what circumstance is literally directly tied to American foreign policy. And, and what wars were we nicely put involved in, or to put it bluntly, we started and why certain groups of people came in under what times. And 
you know, and even amongst our own community members, this look of surprise of, I never was taught this. I never put them two together. And it makes total sense that, for example, people who were brought here or in, invited to come to America with dreams of visas for PhD programs and STEM jobs cannot be compared in the same breath fairly to people who were forced to come here, whether it was through refugee resettlement programs as adoptees or other people who had no say in, in how they came here, right? And so um, it's, again, I, I wish I had, and a part of me actually thinks that maybe there was education in my periphery that talked about this, but in the ever capitalistic meritocratic pursuit of being the best and being, you know, a good business person or whatever we wanted to pursue academically at the time, this wasn't important enough for me to part of absolve into my identity, right? You know, I had plenty of chances to take Asian American stuff in college. I just never did because I was like, how does that help me make a lot of money? And, you know, like, I'm sure I'm not the only one who, who thinks or even felt that way. Uh, but for you, Ian, how did you know, you said, you know, you wanted to study this. So after uh, your time at Monitor, you know, you went in pursuit of this particular field of study. Was there anything particular about your upbringing that wanted, you know, that sparked the interest in wanting to study this? Yeah. So from a personal background, I, um, I would say that I identify as kind of a one and a half generation uh, Chinese American. I was born in Hong Kong and immigrated to the U.S. with my family when I was nine. And I think coming as an immigrant seeded in me a desire to sort of understand this country in a way, because it just seemed, you know, so foreign and so strange uh, in, in many respects. I think one of the things that, you know, first led me towards history, even as as a very young kid, was that I um, back then uh, had a, a pretty good memory. Um, that's questionable these days. Um, but I seem to be, you know, good at recalling facts. And that's kind of all you were doing in high school, uh, right? That that you were, I'm sure lots of folks remember. And that's a big reason why a lot of people don't like history when they get to college is because they think it's all about memorization. It's really not. But at least in, you know, middle school, I was really good at remembering, you know, what war happened when and, you know, which president was, you know, in office and what years. Uh, and that meant I got really good grades in history. And I said, oh, I must be really good at this. But then when I got to college, what I sort of discovered and, and fell in love with was the sense of discovery that there were all of these stories that hadn't been told. And I remember taking a class, you know, in my junior year of college, it was about the history of childhood. And uh, I did a project and actually flew all the way home back in California. Um, I went to the county courthouse and dug up all of these old legal records about Chinese immigrant children that had grown up in Contra Costa County. And, and sort of dug through court cases to sort of see, you know, how they had been dragged into the legal system and, and, you know, who had taken care of them and, you know, what were their ages and what did they do. And it just fascinated me that there were these discoveries that, you know, were waiting to be made. Um, and that when you made those discoveries, you could add to a conversation that was always shifting and that was always changing. It turns out, you know, it's not just about rote memorization. It's also about debate. It's also about discovery. Um, and, and that was kind of what really made me fall in love with not only history as a field, but Asian American history, because so much of that work remains to be done. Right. And, and Christine and I are both, I think, you know, now working our, our butts off uh, to, to get that to help that process out. First of all, I, I think all of us um, say thank you to you because uh, you are studying the thing that wasn't popular you're teaching the things that aren't always you know and, and to be frank in our communities uh well received right because i think the uh the pursuit of the stereotypical asian american dream was to make as much money as possible and to and our parents didn't have the language for this but what they wanted to say was just try to be a tall white guy in corporate america 
right? And um, I realized that I couldn't be that. I'm pretty tall. I'm loud, but I'm a man. But, you know, it, it, it's hard. And so, you know, I, I want to shift the focus, the conversation a little bit on sort of what we all know has happened in the last two years, and particularly as of late, we still, because our uh, news feeds and our you know social circles still are very acutely aware of the violence that is directed towards our community, whether a police department or any politician says it's a hate crime or not, we still feel it as such. And a lot of people, again, because of our limited understanding of our own history or just blatant being gaslit by members of other communities, think that this stuff is new. And it's, you know, whoa, I thought we were, you know, just we were so white adjacent. None of this stuff happens. Where did this anti-Asian violence come from? And it's only when you start to, you know, even uh, dig just under the surface of our existence here um, and how challenging it was, we begin to understand that, unfortunately, none of this is new. And, And maybe perhaps that we're just starting to talk about it and that finally that, you know, people are starting to talk about it. But to, to either of you sort of, is this new? Has there always been, you know, and, and this is not to fear monger, but, you know, has our existence in this country always been welcome and safe? And then how do we put the last couple of years of hate crimes, violence, murders, verbal spitting attacks, all these things combined um, into the greater context of the Asian existence in America? I guess I can start, and uh, I'd, I'd love to um, have Christine add her thoughts too. I, I think one of the things that probably Christine and I both agree on is that violence has been part of the f- very fabric of American society uh, from, from the beginning, right? It's almost almost uh, racist violence. It's almost the United States' original sin. Um, and I, I know for some folks, that's actually kind of a controversial thing to say in the age of CRT you know, debates and, and whatnot. But and I just want to add quickly that the, the way I come at this is to sort of say that, you know, as someone who, you know, is an American, my belief is that to, to be patriotic is to hold your country accountable. And that is in part why we do the work that we do, because we believe that it is important to have this country live up to the ideals that it has espoused, that it has kind of proclaimed as its its key ideals uh, of democracy, of fairness, uh, of equality, uh, and if that's going to be the case, then uh, you know one of the one of the jobs that historians have to do is to hold uh, the public and the government and the country to account. And so one of that uh, one part of that is facing the mu- facing down the music uh, of the fact that racist violence has been at the uh, foundation. Uh, of American history. Uh, That's true of lots of different communities in the United States, starting with Native Americans to uh, black chattel slavery. By the time that, you know, especially East Asian Americans arrive in the mid 19th century, you certainly see, you know, even though there were moments in which, especially among business interests, a lot of support for uh, Asian immigration as laborers, as cheap laborers, it's important to note that they, they welcomed them because of their work, not because they thought that they were equal as people. But, you know, there, there were some pockets uh, uh, in, in the United States in the 1800s that did welcome Asian immigrants. Uh, but for the most part, you know, you begin to see very quickly waves of anti-Asian violence, um, especially in the American West, right? Uh, the historian Beth Lou Williams of Princeton has tracked over 400 cases of, you know, expulsions of attacks of harassment between just a two-year period between 1885 and 1887. That level of violence is what we're talking about. And 
and Christine can add on in terms of some of the other ways that other groups of Asian Americans, you know, have come under attack, you know, in, as, as other groups immigrated to this country or came to this country, you know, beginning in the early 20th century. But I think one of the things that, you know, I as a historian continue to say is, you know, it, it, it is sad, it is tragic, it is infuriating, but it is just sadly not surprising um, that these attacks are happening. Yeah, I really like that, um, um, what you bring up in terms of violence, because something that I'm always trying to convey to my students is the model minority myth is not going to save you. <laughs> like, if you work really, really hard, that doesn't mean that you can't easily be racialized and misidentified. And just to bring it back to this idea of the Pacific Coast and how systems of racial violence were used in terms of, um, you know, stripping Asian American communities of their property. I think about that a lot. And that's really how I approach um, teaching intro to Asian American history to my students is we learn a lot about how Asian Americans, what role they play in settler colonialism, right? So thinking about how it's not as if white people just go <laughs> to the West Coast and declare, this is mine, right? Um, they needed Chinese labor in order to do that because Chinese laborers could actually migrate quicker through the Pacific Ocean than white laborers could on wagons, right, from just the other side of the continent, and so it's really important for my students to understand the ways that Asian Americans have actually been enlisted historically in this country for their labor, but just strategically, right? So Lisa Lowe talks about immigrant acts. And basically, one of the central contradictions that she looks at is why does America love <laughs> um, Asian labor? They love to accept Asian labor and bring in Asian migration, but only that, right? When it comes to integration as citizens, they're casted as perpetual foreigners, right? And so when we look at that, then the model minority myth becomes kind of gross because it's, it's what is causing our further alienation from the country, right? to continue to be workhorses, to continue to be perceived as people who are able to defy this race hierarchy actually makes it where it hurts others, right? And we begin to conceal the people who don't fit that stereotype. So another thing that I teach my students is I get them to read this wonderful chapter by Lisa Cacho, who is um, an Asian American studies, American studies professor at the University of Virginia. And she, in one of her chapters, she looks at how she had a cousin who um, basically he doesn't amount to anything, right? So he dies in a drunk car accident and and basically the whole family and the whole community doesn't know how to lament his death because he's a non-productive member of society right and so 
it talks about even a, a very intimate level, the ways that the model minority myth has made people kind of look away or devalue even people in their own family and their own community. And so, yeah, those are the things that um, I think are really important to unpack with people. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to hear um, other ways that Ian's been doing this kind of work too. You know, I have learned so much over the last couple of years beyond that too, in terms of everything makes sense if you go into history, right? Everything, there's a reason for everything and we can tie a lot of what we think are new feelings, um, you know, even as from from a very uniquely Korean American perspective, you know, because uh, I moved to the states uh, right around the time in in your life as you did, Ian. I moved here like three months before the LA riots, right? And so, like, what I was taught about black people and brown people in this country was was very unfortunately something that I had to unlearn um, because that was the pointed you know reference point and. Even as I was learning about different types of Asian American history, it was always under the lens of, well, it's not Korean, so it's not your history, dude. And and I think the the things that I have had to learn, obviously, you know, we're we're sitting on a show called Dear Asian Americans, and it, it's this impossibility of trying to have a voice that's exhaustively representative of all of us, and yet it's uniquely necessary because we're sitting here, you know, one Chinese, one Filipino, one Korean person, and we can go down our own paths of what our countries or you know are our culture's history I mean, but then the voices are not loud enough, right? And so talk to us about sort of how you view this because it's there there are days where it almost seems impossible to get everybody to agree on something, even as something as dire as our need to want to simply survive in this country. But it's necessary. I mean, we know, but most folks may not like the term Asian American isn't that old. It's about five decades old. It was born out of political necessity. You know, um, how do we make sense of what Asian American, the term and the community definition has evolved in the last two years? Do you think overall, uh, do you both think that it is stronger? Are we more aligned in terms of us standing under one, you know, hypothetical banner to voice? Because even on this topic of what do we do in response to the attacks, we can't agree. And at this point, I don't know what the right answer is either. So, so, you know, maybe we'll start with Christine this time. Tell us about your thoughts on sort of, you know, uh, intra-Asian unity um, or intra-Asian American, you know, solidarity. Because even before we can ask other people to, you know, stand with us in a way, um, we have to figure out what it means to be Asian American together. Right. So in terms of this whole, what is the... (laughs) What is a good way to say this? (laughs) The effectiveness of um, the term Asian American, right? I think that at its core, okay, this might sound crazy, but sometimes when I hear people talk about the European Union and like, what are we going to do about Greece? (laughs) It kind of reminds me about people talk about Asian Americans, um, mostly because I feel like, Filipinos end up being the Greece of Asian Americans as a term because <laughs> people are like, what are we going to do with this? Um, or like, I think being a Filipino American, you experience on a regular basis the ways that Asian American as a term is fraught and how 
a lot of times like brown Asians, South Asian, Southeast Asian Americans are not really included or represented or imagined in that idea. And so I have students who, who are constantly saying that to me where they're like, well, I don't imagine myself as an Asian American. And I think it's good to, to challenge and think about the certain limitations of a particular term, especially when you have like so many Asian Americans migrating and not having that shared collective history of, of you know, San Francisco strike, <laughs> SF State strike, and not knowing why they're Asian American and that not being a term that is explained in, you know, K through 12 education, right? So there's, it's definitely fraught. I acknowledge that it's fraught, but some of the things that I try to do is actually, again, to look at history. So um, Judy Wu has an amazing book called Radicals on the Road. And I've looked at that book to just see it as what are ways to form transnational and inter-ethnic solidarity within Asian communities? Like, what are ways that we can be sensitive to ideas and um, understanding particular limitations? And so I think there are things to do, like ways to approach things with humility and to understand that nobody ever has the right answer. But yeah, it, it is it is a really sticky term and I'd like to know what Ian thinks about it. Well, I think one of the, the first thing I would say is that there are lots of differences within the Asian American, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community, right? AANHPI, AAPI, Asian American. These are all umbrella political terms that were created sometimes by the community itself, sometimes by government, um, you know, bureaucracies uh, to count people. But even just aside from kind of nationality and ethnicity and indigeneity, there's also kind of differences of gender, of class, of religion. And all of these are things that we can, you know, decide will unite us and bring, in, bring us together in common cause, or these are things that are going to divide us. One of the things that's been really interesting to watch is just the kind of evolution of Asian American identity, right, of who, as Christine was alluding to earlier, who's kind of at the center of that, who's at the periphery of that. And that allocation has changed depending on both the, you know, groups of people who've come and the number of people who've come, right? So in the 1960s, you know, when Asian American as a term was kind of coined by the Asian American movement, East Asians were really at the center of that. Um, there was not very much awareness of South Asian or Southeast Asian or Filipino um, uh, or Filipinex folks um, as part of that coalition, you know, as after the Vietnam War happened and, you know, refugee migrations uh, and resettlement started, there was an increasing kind of recognition that Southeast Asian Americans are now part of the picture. But, you know, they still, because of the, the very recent kind of uh, history in the United States, struggle to kind of claim the attention of folks at the center of this Asian American movement. And I think now it's become more inclusive, right? I think uh, certainly within the field of Asian American studies and Asian American history, I think a lot of the most innovative work now is on histories and, and uh, studies uh, of the Vietnamese American community, the Hmong American community, you know, and, and, and so we see how this term has ebbed and flowed, right? And one of the big parts of that is the inclusion of Pacific Islanders, right? Why, why are they sort of lumped in? And one of the explanations that we try to give is that 
Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are united in our experiences of U.S. empire, and that that's part what brings these two very different groups. Uh, and, you know, even within Pacific Islanders, huge differences between Native Hawaiians, Micronesians, Melanesians, right? And so the the thing that I, I come back to is this concept um, of strategic essentialism, which is a, a concept that Christine has already mentioned, um, the scholar Lisa Lowe, who teaches at Yale University. But but I really come back to this concept of strategic essentialism that, that Professor Lowe offers because it helps us to think about what do you want to do, right? And this is something that sometimes my business background actually does come in handy. uh, And and Jerry, you might identify with this too. Part of this is about strategy. Where are you trying to go? What choices are you trying to make? And if the choice we're trying to make is to fight for a more inclusive and just society, right? Then you set aside certain things and you come together around certain things. And the essence that we come around is the idea of being all from this place called Asia that has had certain interactions with the United States and that has been treated in certain ways by not only the United States, but not only by the U.S., but by, you know, kind of the West writ large, right? So strategic essentialism, understanding that it is a political identity that we form so that we can achieve certain things as a community, I think that to me is the driving idea behind the Asian American label that hopefully will continue to take us forward in the future. And so... Looking forward and, and trying to make sense of all this, right? Because I think we talked about that. We always know the complexity of sharing our narrative. And look, I we, we call our you know show obviously, and even the work that I do, just Asian American. I don't uh, add the NH or the PI in my work because I don't have the knowledge or the perspective or the lived experience of talking about it. I, I do think that it is becoming you know almost from a performative perspective politically correct to add all the letters to seem inclusive. But then when you look at the programming or the people that are represented, it lacks it. And so one part is like, well, just say what you want to say. Like, if you just want to talk to a bunch of Koreans, just call it a Korean American show. You don't need to have this like AAPI banner and then you get accused of not having representation. But it's complex, right? And it's going to get more complex because we're having more mixed race relationships. Therefore, our next generation of Asian American children are going to look different. We're constantly going to have fresh immigration still happening. Right. We're supposed to be the largest immigration group in 40, 50 years. That's due to organic growth of us having kids and also continuing to bringing family and other members here. How do we make sure that we're best prepared uh, from a you know mindset perspective, from an identity perspective, so that we can, you know, perhaps repeat a little less of history? And I don't know, you know, I just want my kids to have a safer experience. Right. Like, and it's it it sounds so um, you know, cliche, but that's literally the only reason I do this work, right? So that we need to, we need to talk about this so that they don't have to. But as as you know better from being a historian's perspective, like it just seems you know like same story, different angle, right? Like how, how do we how do we optimistically uh, or can we optimistically look at what our community looks like and we'll go through in the next you know couple of decades? Uh, we'll start with Ian. I think one of the things that's made it really hard to be a historian in the last few years is that. Even though historians recognize that there's a sense of contingency, right, which is to say that things don't always move in a straight line forward from point A to point B, things don't always get better. There has been this recognition that in general, over the course of U.S. history, there has been a slow expansion of rights to people who were previously kind of minorities in one way or another. Um, And I think in various ways, whether it's, you know, gender, whether it's race, whether it's LGBTQ plus folks, the last couple of years have really called into question this country's commitment 
to that idea, um, that it is going to become more inclusive over time. And I think we're settling into a realization that this is going to be and has been a, a very long battle that is just going to keep going back and forth. And that's exhausting. Uh, it's exhausting to be in the front lines of that battle in one way or another, right? Christine and I are doing work in the classroom, and that's the capacity in which we're engaging with this debate. Jerry, you're doing this podcast, and you're going out and talking to folks and changing kind of hearts and minds, you know, one person or one listener at a time. But I think part of what is important for us all to do is to give ourselves a bit of grace, right? That this is not going to happen overnight. And I think maybe in our era of kind of TikTok and Instagram, it's really easy to question and get demotivated when we don't see change immediately overnight. But if we just look at the struggles that, for example, the Black community has gone through, right, that fight is still not over. And and so this is going to be a really long uh, marathon. It's not a sprint. And we have to prepare ourselves to engage with that. And that means getting educated, right? That means going to... Um, you know, it, it, there, there are increasing numbers of actually Asian American history museums all around the country. Take your family. If you're in the Northwest, uh, Pacific Northwest, go to the Wing Luke Museum in Seattle. If you're in Chicago, go to the Chicago America, uh, Chinese American Museum uh, in Chinatown. Get educated. We are lucky that there is a, a growing body of scholarship, but also really smart general nonfiction writing like Kathy Park Hong's Minor Feelings. Um, that are kind of speaking to our moment right now um, and acknowledging, you know, the feelings that you have, getting educated, talking to your neighbors about it. I think one of the things that I sometimes find it hard to do is to sort of stand up and be the spokesperson for, for the Asian American community if I'm uh, privileged to be put in that position, because I don't want to try to speak for everybody. But there is a way in which we can be ambassadors and, and talk to folks about what is going on in the community. There are still people, uh, public polls have shown recently that there's still people who don't recognize that there is an upsurge in violence against Asian Americans over the last two years. I don't know where they have been living. I would like to go to there, um, as the kids say, because it seems like a very happy, peaceful place. But that's not the world that we're in right now. And so I think to to find the, the resolve and the strength to share of yourself, of your family, of your community's history in, in one way or another is, is really important to do. Because, you know, unfortunately, even though there are growing numbers of us, we are not going to be a majority anytime soon. And so it is going to take uh, some collaboration and partnership with other communities, especially other communities of color. Um, in terms of thinking about a ray of hope, I get a huge ray of hope from from the students that I'm teaching Gen Z. And I think it's because of people like you, Jerry, who are like, you know, of an older generation who are more open about how can, how like even just that question that you framed it as, right? Is I want the resources. I want, I don't want to perpetuate these silences, right? With my kids. I think that wasn't happening when we were being raised by parents who were like, let's suppress everything and not talk about it and make money. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's just these really beautiful ways that my students have been able to take things that I think are terribly violent and then figure out a way to, to make it whole. So I was just to give you an example, I was showing my, my kids, um, my students, not kids, that's patronizing, um, these stereoscopes, which was basically like vintage 3D, like virtual reality <laughs> classes. 
um, and uh, they would show images and you could see a 3D image if you had glasses, like in the 20s. Um, and I was using it to be like, this is what, like, this is how U.S. empire operated overseas. And then I had this one amazing Korean-American student named Kate, who then used that same technology to capture what it's like to, to live in this disjointed way, like to always be longing for place in Korea and not have it. And so she turned something that was deeply a tool of colonization to like this diasporic 3D vision. And so I think for a lot of the kids that are coming up in the world, they just need adults who are saying like, you're right, that's messed up and giving them the space to process it, to affirm them and, and not tell them, but how are you going to like monetize that? <laughs> you know? um, and so I really think that's just the way forward is it's to value those things that maybe we discovered later in life or nobody told us to care about, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, we all learn this stuff at different points in our lives. But once you learn it, you can't unlearn it, right? It really if you start to think about how everything makes sense and how frustrating it is, and you know, we, we we think about even well, do I even want to raise my kids in this country, right? Like because it's it's we realize how bad it is, and we were taught, especially from a Korean you know perspective, we were rescued by the the shining armor white American soldiers, and so there's this beautiful country myth that America is great and all things are great, and we are going to be welcomed here, and, and it's not. Um, this has been one hell of a discussion. We want to take it you know, further and invite both of you back to talk more deeply. And I think you know, we've learned so much. And I am optimistic, partially because I have no other choice than to be optimistic about our future. But we have to continue to stay loud on these things because history does repeat itself. And history is the only thing, in my opinion, the understanding of history and understanding of root causes of all these things, how we're going to get out of this. And so uh, to Christine, Ian, Thank you so much. Continue to stay loud in your classrooms, online, in everything that you do. We are here to put a megaphone to you and then to put you know you on stages and, and make it louder. I know it's not the easiest time to be teaching this stuff in you know predominantly white institutions with administrations that aren't aren't behaving well and you know making it harder for us in state legislatures. But thank you so much for staying loud, and uh, we'll talk to you all next time. Thanks, everybody. Big shout to Ian and to Christine for making time on such short notice for us uh, to share this conversation and to be able to share or to share their insights and their intellect and their genius with us. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Ian for a while and um, just his passion for wanting to make sure that we all understand and learn history, perhaps in a way that we never learn and to make sure that history, uh, our history is being uh, never being silenced. Uh, and he and Christine and so many of our scholar friends in the community are doing such great work. Uh, where you can find Ian and Christine will be in the show notes. And I encourage you, if you're a college student, uh, to take a study, to take a class on Asian American studies. If you are in high school, uh, advocate for that. And wherever you are, uh, the inclusion of Asian American studies is gaining steam in states all across the country. Illinois and New Jersey has done it um, recently on an interview with former guest Safan Kim. Um, uh, New York State Governor uh, had stated on an interview that she would support uh, the potential inclusion of Asian American studies in the New York State education system. And let me tell you, as a product of the New York State and New York City public education system during high school, I would be ecstatic 
uh, for my uh, future alumni of my high school at Bronx Science and other places to learn our history. And Asian American history is American history. And so contact us if you want to uh, share a comment, rate us, review us, uh, hopefully with five stars on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you do review shows and rate shows. You can email us at hello at theasianamericans.com. You can email me directly at jerry at jerryone.com. Learn more about the work I do outside of this podcast at jerryone.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, where I have shared a lot of our pictures of our White House trip or on Instagram at jerryj1. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Big thanks again to Ian and Christine for sharing our stories and to our friends and lovely partners at Stand with Asian Americans for allowing us to have this 10-part series called The Years Americans, What Now? Back again this Friday with another amazing Asian American story. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have been your host, Jerry Wan, and wishing you health, safety, and happiness. I'll see you next time.